Our God, indeed, how great you are, Lord. We thank you so much, God, for revealing yourself to us. Lord God, that we could come into your presence, Lord, boldly through Jesus Christ and through your spirit, God. We thank you so much, Lord, that you revealed yourself to us, Lord, and that you will continue to reveal yourself, Lord, to those that you are calling to yourself. Lord, open our eyes today. Lord, give us grace, Lord, to see, to see you anew afresh, Lord, and to be renewed, Lord, in our desire to follow you, to imitate you, Lord. Show us the glory of the Father and the Son. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. We do get to see in today's passage Jesus reveal more about his relationship between him and his Father, especially a work relationship that they are working together to save us, to save people. And this partnership, although it's a little bit different, also applies to us, that we have a partnership with God, a work partnership to do the works that he's called us to do. This revelation has a lot to do with seeing, seeing both in the physical and in the spiritual sense, uh, which is an understanding And both of these require seeing in different ways. Overall, what is usually unseen, we have to see in a new way. From the beginning of John, this theme has been uh, interspersed in several of the chapters, starting with John chapter 1, verse 29, when John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God had revealed that to him, and he was pronouncing it. And then in 32, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. What did that look like? And then in John 1.48, when Jesus says to Nathanael, I saw you under the fig tree, and he told him that, and Nathanael was so astounded, he said, exclaimed, Jesus, you are the Son of God. And then again in John 3.2, Chapter 3, verses 2 through 3, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night, he says, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He's not talking about the kingdom of God in heaven. He's talking about the kingdom of God on earth. Now, or when that time when Jesus was ministering, it's a kingdom of God that's at hand because Jesus was there, Mark 1.15. Or in Luke 17.21, it's a kingdom of God that's within you or in your grasp because of Jesus giving you new sight, making you be born again of the Spirit. So as we go into today's passage, you're going to see that There's not a lot that we can put in a nice little package of theology. It's more of a seeking and meditating on and understanding how does this relationship between Jesus and his father be a model for us. Certainly it's a model for us just in seeing their relationship, their rich relationship and how it worked. And may we enjoy that and be astounded. So just... To go back to the setting, we've already been over this part of the scripture, but we have to go back to it because it's continuing to discuss this this 
what happened in John 5, verses 8 through 9, where in this passage of today, Jesus is responding to the Jews' persecution of him for healing this lame man. So let's read John 5, 16 through 20. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. Going back to verse 16, uh, let's look at verse 11 in conjunction with it. So verse 16 says, And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. What things? It's like they wouldn't even say what happened, that this man was healed. In fact, in verse 11, it says, The man who was healed says, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Verse 12, They, the Jews, asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? No mention of the healing at all. They're so focused on this law issue. So in verse 16, they just say Jesus was doing these things. Now, dealing with this issue of legalism that they're complaining about, Jesus breaking the Sabbath, I want to go to a couple of other Gospels just to see how Jesus dealt with this in other passages, starting with Luke 14, I'm paraphrasing a lot of scripture because, uh, just to go uh, faster. But Luke 14, 3 through 5, Jesus asked the lawyers and Pharisees, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Jesus said to them, which of you, after healing the man, said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? In Matthew 12, 11 through 12, it's a sheep that falls into the pit. And Jesus asks, which one of you will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Jesus' point is very practical. You and even most of the Jews that are complaining will do what is urgent and important on the Sabbath. Can you imagine not lifting out your son that's fallen to a well because it's the Sabbath? It's crazy. And think about what's happening in this section of John chapter 5. Again, this man is lame. He's been lame for 38 years, sick for 38 years. He's been in this public place for a long time. I would say that he's in a ditch He's in a ditch with all those problems and no one is doing anything. But these Jews are not focused on that. Instead, they're straining at the gnat of the man carrying his bed and they're swallowing the camel of ignoring the man's healing and it being a sign of the Messiah. In the face of this legalism, in John, Jesus says, my father is working until now. Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working 
In other words, Jesus tells them that this healing on the Sabbath was just done by God, who is his Father. If God is doing it, it's not breaking the Sabbath. I think they should get that. So Jesus could say, my father is working on that this Sabbath, and I'm working with him to rescue this man out of the ditch of lameness and sickness. This man was also likely brokenhearted, that he had no one to care for him. For he says in John 5, 7, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. For a long time, this man had been ignored, left behind, And when he goes, someone else steps before him. I would be brokenhearted. But part of Jesus' anointing and calling was, yes, to heal the lame so that they could leap for joy, like John mentioned last week, but also his calling was to bind up the brokenhearted. Isaiah 61.1 So I hear Jesus saying, My Father and I are saving this ill, lame, and broken-hearted man Today, no more waiting. We're not waiting for the Sabbath to be done. Jesus sees his father doing this and is going to do it. He's going to trust him. He's going to trust his father and work alongside him on the Sabbath, though he knew he would be persecuted for it. But Jesus delighted to do the father's will. So it says, my father is working until now and I'm working Uh, This could refer just generally to how the Father and Son are working to uphold creation. Generally, like in Hebrews 1-3, where Jesus is upholding the universe by the word of his power. Or Matthew 10-29, not one of the two sparrows will fall to the ground apart from your Father. This until now, my Father is working until now, that could just mean that It's the Sabbath. We just healed him. Obviously, God is working. But it could also mean that the Father and Son have been working since before the foundation of the world or at the time of the fall to save people from sin and to reconcile them to God. The whole history of the redemption story in the scriptures, all the acts of God, the directing of lives and circumstances, the promises and faith, all pointing to this time of Jesus' birth, and now this healing, this man at this time, and then soon to come his death and his resurrection, bringing the Savior to God's chosen people and to the Gentiles. For Jesus' statement in verse 17 that the Father is working until now and I'm working, the Jews are not just persecuting him, now they're going to kill him. Verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now the Jews have gone from legalism to theological pride and party spirit, putting the doctrines of man above the word of God and the signs of God that the word of God say would accompany the Messiah. So let's first talk about calling God his own father. This is not a surprise to us because we know from New Testament that it's so clear that Jesus is the son of God. He's born of the Holy Spirit. But if we're just looking at Old Testament verses, first of all, we have to see that um, there are lots of scriptures about 
God being a father to his people. For example, Malachi 2.10, Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Isaiah 64.8, But now, O Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Yes, it's true, sometimes this father-son relationship is referring to Israel as a whole, but I think it also talks about individually, as these verses show. But even more than that, about the father and son having a special father-son relationship, that's prophesied in Scripture, especially in Isaiah 9.16. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Similarly, in Proverbs 30, verse 4, though not a messianic text per se, the writer specifically refers to the work of God and his Son. Verse 4, he says, Who has ascended to heaven come down and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? What is his son's name? Surely you know. This man had great understanding, even though in verses 2 and 3 of that chapter, he says he was too stupid to be a man and other such humble statements. But he knows that the Holy One, the Creator God, has a son. Lastly, Psalm 89, it's a messianic psalm regarding how a descendant of David would sit on the throne. And it says, verse 26 of Psalm 89, He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. I mean, that seems to be part of the reason why the Jews are upset is that Jesus was saying, My Father. But here it is in the Old Testament. So these and other Old Testament passages should have humbled the Jews who were persecuting Jesus and made them search the scriptures of God's promise of Messiah. Even Nicodemus tries to call them to a more humble response in John chapter 7, verses 50 through 52. But they give a one scripture test to support their theological conclusion about Jesus. Not a wise thing to do. They also accused Jesus of saying that because he said God was his father, that he was equal with God. And obviously saying he's not equal with God. So from the above scriptures, Jesus saying God is his father is not the same as saying that he's equal with God. In fact, the way I read verse 19, where it says, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing, I think that's Jesus saying the father is greater than I, which is what he says in John 14, 28. Later in the Gospel of John, Jesus will make statements that speak to an equality between the Father and the Son, such as chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one, or John 17, 5, in the priestly prayer, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. But either way, the Jews are stuck in this doctrinal pride First, they're either attributing a statement to Jesus that wasn't what he was saying and wanting to put him to death for it, not a good thing, or he is missing 
the promised Messiah because they didn't examine the words of God, the Messianic texts, and see that the signs that Jesus was doing was fulfilling what the scriptures said they would. And so they had these wrong theological constructs. At this point, the Jews are the enemy of God's plan to redeem people. Just think if Jesus would have backed down from doing the will of God, if he would have been afraid and said, no, they're going to kill me. Of course, Jesus didn't do that. He carried out his father's plan. So all the more they were seeking to kill him. In the face of this death threat, Jesus boldly proclaims the truth. Verse 19, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. What an example to us of trusting in his Father. He is acknowledging that he sees his Father in heaven, and he's going to do what the Father is doing, even though there's a death threat. Jesus entrusts his life to his heavenly Father, including the timing of his own death. Jesus is going to be faithful to his Father's plan. Again, it's like Jesus saying, my father is working today. I see him working today and I'm joining him in his work now. Because of Jesus' boldness to speak the truth of the situation, we get to hear of this visual work partnership between the father and the son. Jesus had been seeing this special kind of relationship from who knows how long You know, like father, like son, you imitate your father. And I'm sure he was imitating his father from an early age. But we know from scripture that at least by the age of 12, when he left his parents in Jerusalem and they found him, he says, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? That speaks of a strong relationship from an early age. You young people, don't let your youth go by without knowing your God, spending time with him. So what does it mean that Jesus could do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing? So this Greek word for sees, and the same thing with the word sees in John 3, is both physical, like bodily eye seeing, and metaphorically seeing with the mind. So unfortunately, it doesn't give us a lot of help to know what exactly Jesus is seeing. And part of this gets into the issue about whether or not Jesus is acting as God or as a man. But if we just focus on Jesus being God for a minute, um, people will say that what Jesus means is that he can do nothing of his own accord because he's automatically going to do the Father's will. Of course, he wouldn't not do the Father's will. So by being God, it's just saying that they're one. Jesus is going to do what his Father wants him to do. And I think Pavan referenced this scripture earlier today, Hebrews 10:7. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as is written of me in the scroll of the book, speaking of his death to establish the covenant of justification by faith and grace. However, I don't think that this perspective sufficiently accounts for Jesus' words describing the relationship between the Father and Son of delight and dependence. First, talking about the delight. 
In John chapter 4, verse 34, when Jesus ministers to the woman at the well, and the woman goes off, and the disciples come to him and say, Master, we have food for you. And he says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. In other words, Jesus was so fed and so excited by seeing God work in this woman and in the huge crowds that were coming to hear more that he said, this is my food. This is what I'm living for or through or by. This same kind of delight is found in the healing of the lame man. In John 5.14, it says, this is after the man is healed, he goes away, the Jews question him, and then Jesus finds him in the temple and says, it says in 5.14, Jesus found him, the healed man in the temple, and said to him, see you are well. In other words, Jesus is rejoicing in this healing. He's also rejoicing that this man is responding spiritually For Jesus tells him, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. So I see Jesus having joy in heaven over this sinner who is repenting, or at least listening to his words to to repent. And remember that in 1 John 3, 8, it talks about Jesus destroying the works of the enemy. I think Jesus is having fun destroying the works of the enemy in this situation. Dependence. We also here see that in John and elsewhere that Jesus is fully depending on his Father for everything. For example, in 1 Peter 2, 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So this dependence and trust to me fits a lot better with thinking of Jesus as a man. 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6 focuses on him being a man because he was fully man and fully God. That scripture says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. It was a man that was a mediator between God and man, even in this situation. It's Jesus seeing what the Father is doing, doing it and other people seeing what Jesus is doing so that they can see the Father. The same thing with this word. Let me read verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. This dependent relationship is one of love, which we've talked about very a lot in, in the beginning service today. How filled with love the Father is for the Son, and the Son reciprocates that love. And it also gives Jesus great confidence, this love that the Father has for him. Such a love that says that I am going to show you everything. That's a great father, isn't it? Fathers, take note. Show your children what you're doing, and mothers also. It builds confidence in them. The Father is saying, I will show you everything you need to be and do. So this word shows here is like the seeing. It's also a physical and a figurative. 
One scripture where Jesus uses it in a figurative way is from that time Jesus began to show, I'm sorry, this is Matthew 16, 21. From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That showing most most certainly done through words, Jesus telling him this is what's telling them this is what's going to happen. But I think in this situation, with the man being healed, that it's probable that it means that Jesus was shown by the Father this particular person. Because there were lots of blind and, blind and lame and paralyzed sick people there at the pool. It could have been that Jesus just felt compassion for him because he'd been there for a long time. Um, Or it could have been that Jesus saw him before he was there, just like he saw Andrew before he saw Jesus, I mean, before he came to Jesus. Um, Or it could be just that as he was looking around, the Father showed him something about him that made him know and have faith. That's the person to heal. I'm not saying other people weren't healed. It could be that Jesus did heal, but that's the only one that the Scripture is talking about. So... There's also a relationship between the seeing and showing and the words that the Father gives Jesus to speak. In John 14, I'm sorry, 12:49, Jesus says, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. So it's not just what Jesus sees about the man, but uh, the father must have told him the words to say, get up, take up your bed, and walk. So lastly, on this last part of verse 20, and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. He's speaking to the Jews. I find in this a hopeful statement about the Jews marveling in Jesus and believing and that certainly happens in John 7:31. Says yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? They were different than the Jews in chapter 12 who did marvel. Unfortunately, the fear of man kept them from confessing Christ. John 12:42. Of course, there are many other examples of Jews marveling over Jesus and following him, including Paul. And certainly one of the great things that they had to marvel about was Jesus' own death for the sins of God's people, for the sins of man, believing in him, the resurrection. So let's talk a little bit about how this applies to us. First of all, if you're a man or woman in a ditch today, You can go from brokenhearted and struggling with sin to a new life in Christ. Jesus completed the mission of dying on the cross for our sins so that we could be reconciled to him and through his resurrection have the power of God in our lives. So once we've trusted in Christ, once we've come to him, believed in him, been born again, filled with the Spirit, then we have this work partnership with God that I was talking about. Just in general, 
In Philippians 2.13, it says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. If you're a believer, God is at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's a partnership. God working in you to do that. We have the general thing that we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it's a prayer of our Father, but we're part of the Our Father. We're saying, God, do your will on the earth through me. I'm the one who is praying this and saying, God, do this. But it's also in our prayer. But then there's lots of specifics. In fact, every area of our life is to be lived with God. Jesus is in us. We're in him. He's in us. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. So you have a partnership with God in your marriage, in your parenting, in your work to provide, in your work for the kingdom. Not that those are automatically a division. You can work for the kingdom while you're working for provision, but there's also helpful to think about them as being separate. In church, there's a very complex partnership because you, each one of you believers, has received a gift that's for the rest of the body. And the body has to be built up to work right. First Peter 4.10, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. You've been given a gift. You've been given a stewardship to use it by God's grace. Verse 11, Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, you're serving in the church, in the body, by God's strength. It's a partnership. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. I mean, isn't that the point? That if we're doing things on our own without God in partnership, how is God going to get glory for that? No, God has created good works for each one of us to walk in them that he may be glorified. And just in general, we have the Word of God that gives us the boundaries of what we can and can't do. It gives us lots of specifics that we need to pay attention to, and we need to feed on the Word of God and dwell on it. But within that, once we're walking in the commandments of God, uh, abiding in Jesus, then we have freedom to go and love. You have freedom to see what is God doing in my life today? What opportunities do I have? You know, when, when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ, that whole statement is based on the end of chapter 10, which is talking about being all things to all people that we might save some. So, that's what I see Jesus doing. But there are hindrances to us seeing this way and walking with God in this partnership. The first thing that I think of is, well, just from the text, don't be like the Jews. Don't be a legalist. Don't be theologically proud, excluding what God is doing. Don't be envious or have a party spirit. Because remember, it was out of envy that Pilate said that Jesus was delivered up. So we have to check our hearts to not have things like that. 
But then the biggest hindrance I see is self. Remember that for all Christians, Jesus calls us to take up our cross, deny ourselves daily, and follow him. That is the key to being ready for opportunities that God gives us. Otherwise, we're just going to do our own thing. I want to do what I want to do. Yes, there's a place for that. God gives us refreshment. God gives us uh, the desires of our heart. But let us not major on those things to the exclusion of first saying, Lord, I'm here for you. I'm here to do your work, your will. Show me. There are others. Obviously, the scripture has lots of warnings about things that will keep us from being fruitful. And we'll talk about a lot more when whoever preaches John 15, I believe. But um, just one more. Remember that the parable of the sower, that the cares of this life, the desire for riches and other things can choke out the word. And so we need to keep a loose hand on all those things and say, God, these, anything I have is for you. Direct me. I hope that you've seen a little bit of the richness of the father-son relationship, the love, the partnership, the work, what it's like, even if it doesn't really apply to us because we don't see like Jesus sees the Father. There's lots of ways that we can see it and walk in it and desire it. We are called to imitate our Lord. Let us have a close relationship with God as he leads us for his purposes. So may we see him and what he's doing and joyfully join him for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you, Lord, for revealing yourself to us through your word. Lord, we thank you for using um, weak vessels, Lord. Um, And we just pray, God, for, Lord, your grace, uh, Lord, to bring to our mind and to help us to look more at things that you're stirring within us. Oh God, we certainly pray, God, for anyone who's in a ditch today, Lord, of any kind. God, thank you for, Lord, your hand of mercy reaching out to each one of them, each one of us, like you did for this man who was left behind and sick and lame. God, thank you for your great mercy and love. And Lord, we just commit all these things to you and ask that you would be glorified in our remembering of them delighting in you and doing your will. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.